Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember to keep up with us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for us at Radio Islam USA, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. If that's SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, or Google Play, you will find us, that's right, at Radio Islam USA. We are joined in studio by Noura Al-Masri. She is the Director of Outreach for Sound Vision and a, uh, a veteran activist and a nonprofit professional. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. So uh, first off, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to talk uh, to the Radio Islam listeners. Uh, one of the things that comes up quite often when Muslims are talking about uh, our collective place in, uh, in society, in the United States, and how we're looked at and how people are responding to us and talking about us. We talk about who's telling our story. We talk about narrative. This word narrative continues to come up. Uh, what is what does that mean to you? It's actually we always complain. We always say no one can tell our story, and a lot of us are afraid to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether whether that we don't think we have enough information to speak, uh, or we cannot speak publicly, or we cannot tell our story. But in fact, no matter how we tell our story, mm-hmm. it's better to be said by us. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that comes to mind for me is that because we have such wonderful diversity in the Muslim uh, community is that when one portion uh, of the community is not vocal, then it really takes away from it takes away from the whole because that representation is not there. Correct. So um, so when it comes to. I mean, everything is politics now, right? It's mm-hmm. it's all it's all politics, and a lot of people got active when, um, well, I guess more active or aware that they should be active upon the election of our current president Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and he ran on a very visible uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, uh, anti-Islam uh, platform. Uh, do you think that possibly his election has has it served has it served a, a good purpose just in terms of getting more people uh, engaged? Absolutely. Like um, that reminds me of the uh, ayah in the Quran. It says like, mm-hmm. "Like you might hate something. It looks bad, but in fact, it's good because that." Uh, triggered us to be more active, triggered more women to be to run for uh, elections, more Muslims to run for elections. Um, so that even people who never has been have been active before, they came on the table now, and a lot of people running for the uh, November election. And mm-hmm. this is what, like, I, I hope other people won't forget about it, like, and go vote for these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's. Uh, that really worked in our uh, in our benefit. Even like some people, like uh, some candidates, like ran for election and didn't make it to November, but they still had their voice out. They still have uh, more opportunity to run again. And we're learning through the experience. And the expert now will teach others like who are willing to run for election next time. Mm. Now, one of the things that Sound Vision does is 
um, is, is engagement with the media, uh, whether it be training people who who will stand in front of cameras or uh, possibly just, just let, let, letting folks know what they should be looking for in terms of how to present their story. So uh, we recently had a, uh, a media event. So if you could tell us about the, some of the main takeaways and who was the featured presenter? We had Adina Lakovic. She is a great uh, media expert. She came all the way from L.A. to present, uh, to do this workshop in Mecca Center in Olabrook. Um It's a four-hour workshop. Uh, she focuses on main thing, what, how to tell your story. So if you're an activist or a community leader, you, even if you have done like a lot of interviews, even if you have spoken to the media multiple times, um, you still can benefit from this media workshop. Um, she mentioned basically like to tell your story you, to when you speak to the media, you have to tell a story, state a fact, but don't go so long with this fact because facts it's not going to be remembered so much. Yeah. And then present an idea, like give the give the audience an idea to follow up with. So that was like the main thing. And then she had a lot of uh, exercises like speaking to the media. If the media showed up, um, showed up uh, in, in your mosque or in your place and you, you want to talk about it, uh, uh, you want to tell the story or speak about a main event, how to tell it, how to... Um, react quickly and to how to stand up before so you can have um, more powerful voice mm -hmm. um, basically that's how that what was it but um, it, it was very good and if, if anyone interested to bring that media workshop to the community uh, they can just contact sound vision and uh, we can happily bring it to the community this is the first time happening in Chicago but it did happen in different places St. Louis and uh, California and a few other states so we will be happy to bring it to other communities all right now this is going to sound really commercial but I'm going to ask what what email should they should they reach out to they can reach to me, reach out to me Nura N-O-U-R-A at soundvision.com Okay. All right. Now, when you mentioned that, what I couldn't help but realize is that even though the majority of folks will never stand in front of a microphone or in front of a camera, but we all will stand in front of somebody mm -hmm. who who doesn't know us right? mm -hmm. or, or who is being informed or misinformed by the media. So just what you said, those those points about telling a story and giving a fact, these are things that just the average person can take advantage of when they're standing in front of somebody who doesn't know anything about about Islam, doesn't know anything about Muslims. Absolutely. Especially when hijabi woman or like a man who can, you know, with a beard, like you can figure out like he's a Muslim from the way he's dressed or the way he's acting. Mm -hmm. But for the woman, like more visible, like with hijab, we face a lot of questions, a lot of uh, excuse me moments, like where you have to be ready to answer. Yeah. And the... Uh, Yeah, that's you true. have to be ready for this answer. You have to. Uh, she she mentioned how you should like connect to the person first, mm -hmm. ask him or her another question, like introduce yourself, so you can take a buzz and then like answer in a polite way, in the way that you you know why they are asking you, so mm -hmm. you know how to answer them best. Right, right, and and a lot of that is about being being patient mm -hmm. uh, and not being defensive. Exactly. Because, I mean, and, and the, the truth of the matter is this, is that people, 
are sensitive about things when they have some knowledge about them. And when people don't have knowledge, then they're not sensitized. So we all have an opportunity. I mean, whatever whatever role we find ourselves in in society, whether it be as, as Muslim or a part of any other uh, minority in this society, uh, people generally are looking to, they're looking for some information. So I yeah. think that's great for people to be able to. That's true. She mentioned too, like, uh she had an excuse me moment at the supermarket and like someone like when she asked why they are asking she would sur- be surprised like some people like oh our daughter our son about to marry to a muslim we just oh, curious wow. to know more and this was very surprising to me yeah and we learned about uh, about like each other uh, experience so mm-hmm. it's really beneficial to be uh, to be in that workshop actually also, there was an interesting thing. Like she asked, like ask your partner about um, the story behind their names, and you'll be surprised, like what to the nice story. And you know, you uh, a lot of people built a connection from the stories uh, they have about their names. And even if you know the person for a long time, mm-hmm. um, you might not have asked him. I you might not even know this story before. So it was really interesting. And in four hours, you don't even feel it. Was oh. really nice. Well, that says a whole mm-hmm. lot. That mm-hmm. says a lot. So, one of the other things that came along, you mentioned this um, about Muslim women, particularly those who cover, uh, being the most visible segment of the Muslim population, mm-hmm. and and I guess it would make sense that they would probably be in in situations where they're answering questions, you know, possibly more so than anybody else. Yeah. But also that kind of relates to the fact that we've seen an increase in the visibility and the participation um, uh, of Muslim Muslim women when it comes to speaking on behalf of the Muslim community mm-hmm. uh, and in building coalitions uh, and running for office. We just recently had um, a, a number of, uh, of Muslim women who, who ran. And so segueing, we have an event coming up, and one of those, one of those women, who has, um, I guess, kind of catapulted, right into the uh, forefront, with uh, beginning with the work on the um, with the women's march. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be seeing her uh, pretty yeah. soon. That's really exciting. We're going to have Linda Sarsour, mm-hmm. the co-chair of uh, the women's march. Mm-hmm. She's going to be at our event in October twenty-seven. That's going to be on Saturday. Um, it's going to be in Ashton Place, Willowbrook. Um, she's going to be coming, and we're so uh, glad to have her. Uh, she's an amazing uh, role model for a lot of um, for a lot of Muslims women, and also a lot of youth. Actually, my son, he's 16, and he just loves Linda. <laughs> she is his uh, role model. He was really excited inviting everyone to the event just because of Linda. Yeah. You know, you mentioned something earlier that I, and that was people feeling like they're not qualified to speak. Yeah. And when you have that type of, um, when you have that type of fear over you, then it becomes very difficult to change or affect any of the things that are going on uh, around you because you're waiting for somebody else who is better equipped or more knowledgeable. Um, And, 
I think when I see some of the uh, activists, and I know I'm taking a little little bit of a detour away from um, from Linda, and I'm I'm going to come right back. Um, but when I see some of the people that have kind of put themselves out there now, mm-hmm. what I see is people just looking at what's in front of them and saying, "I'm not going to wait for anybody else. Yeah, I'm I'm just going to get out here and I'm going to do what I can." And there's something that is really uh, there's a, that's inspiring and refreshing about that because too often people are told to be quiet mm-hmm. right? and I know uh, and I've never met her but I, I've you know I've followed her work as well but uh, Linda is not one of those people who is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's our it's our good luck she's not one of these people she's yeah. very strong she's from New York as she identify herself uh, yeah. all the time that being like she cannot shut off for uh, not telling the truth she cannot be silent for anyone mm-hmm. um like any uh, minorities or anyone who uh, um, treated wrong, mm-hmm. she's always there for everyone. Yeah, and she's risking her family and her life for that. She had a lot of threats. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Tell me, what do you think it means to have? Um, because as as a nonprofit uh, professional yourself, how important is coalition building? It is very important because, like. One person or one uh, one group of people cannot uh, achieve as much, but when we are all together, when we have allies, when we uh, from all different gr- different groups, whether it's um, uh, other religions, faith coalitions, it is important to to find uh, common ground and work for with each other to achieve the goal that we all agreed on forget about our differences differences and what about like what we don't agree on and just focus on what we agreed on to the better of our communities to the better of our uh, country uh, to to keep our country great mm-hmm. it it is already great just keep it great because um, if we all divided no one will achieve anything um so nothing really changes. Nothing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, are you surprised at the amount of people? Because I don't, okay, I do not want to, and I'm not going to paint things as all roses, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because in this work of trying to be civically engaged and trying to build coalitions, uh, trying to inspire those who are sitting on the sidelines to mm-hmm. say, look, you need to get up. At the very least, you need to register to vote. And yeah. then after you register to vote, you need to be educated as to well, not not so much even educated. You need to assess your own life and self and say, what are the issues that are important to me and who's speaking to those issues? And then mm-hmm. you got to go show up and vote. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Does it surprise you with regard to I'm going to bring this home very just with regard to segments of the Muslim community who are still under this uh the belief that they can afford to not be civically engaged, that they can afford to just think they can go it alone. Does that surprise you? It just makes me, like, very angry. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, I especially, like, I'm active with ICN. Like, uh, one time, like, we... we uh, That's the uh, Islamic Center of is, Naperville? Yes. Okay. We, tr- uh, we try to register people to vote like I stayed on the woman's side and the majority of them didn't want to vote didn't want to register didn't want to do anything right. so that was very disappointing 
And I, after all these, after what's happening to us, after all these changes that it might uh, have a lot of negative uh, effects on our families and our uh, community, and still a lot of people avoiding avoiding this, and they don't want to. They're not interested to to go vote or register to vote. So, I think like if every family have only one person that understands that. Uh, how important it is to get civically en engaged and registered to vote and go uh, bent, uh, bent our future, mm. they should kind of force their family to go, mm. encourage them, like have them, like you motivate them to go and vote. Like, so take your family with you and go make, the, make sure they are all registered to vote and um, encourage them to go and vote and educate them because... If we have only one person in each family, we can we can get it done. If not, if everyone like, oh, I'll do it myself. I don't care if anyone else will do it. Then we will keep losing. Um, inshallah, if we if we care about others, encourage our neighbors, encourage our family, then uh, we're gonna be in in a way of a success. Yes, inshallah, inshallah. inshallah. Last question. So Linda Sarsour, she is one of the featured uh, speakers. Mm -hmm. And there's also another uh, gentleman yes. that is going to be uh, speaking as well. Could you tell us a little bit about who that is? Amr Kauji. Amr Kauji, he is a Syrian-American. He was born and raised in America, in Chicago. And uh, he, um, he's he been activist since he was in school. And he was active, uh, very active in Palestinian cause and then like in Syrian cause. After he graduated, he um, he got his job at AJ Plus. He's now a producer in, uh, in AJ Plus. Uh, he works in Qatar. Okay. And he's coming all the way from Qatar here to speak to the people for of the importance of the media. Like and for and those for those who might not be familiar, mm. AJ Plus. AJ Plus is what um, if one uh, one of the most important. Uh, um, it's Al Jazeera, basically, but it's... That's what I was thinking. Yeah, right. it's Al Jazeera, yeah. but it's the online uh, Al Jazeera, like, where you have, like, small videos, yeah. um, you know, giving you a lot of information. He's uh, he's working on that. Um, okay. On that. And he, he uh, the way he found his job, it was through Twitter. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he was he had, one of those Twitter stormers? Yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting. Okay. Yeah. I have to go back and look at that. Uh -huh. I hope it's still up. Yeah. Yes, I, I think it is. I can find it and find it for yeah. you. Uh -huh. Okay. Right. So I want to remind you, what's the date? October 27th. 27th at, is it Ashton? Ashton Place oh, at Ashton. 6 p.m. Okay, Ashton Place, 6 p.m. Come out, uh, and the whole focus is on mobilizing, it's on um, uh, capturing and, and telling your own story, telling our story, and ours is a diverse story. It's a lot of beauty t to that diversity, but it requires everybody using their voice, uh, showing up, speaking up for that beauty to be seen. So October 27th, Ashton Place, make sure you show up and come out and hear some of these phenomenal speakers. Uh, and uh, Sister uh, uh, Nora, she will be on site as well. If you are interested in uh, booking the media workshop, yeah, um, you can see her live and in person. So, uh, anything else you want to add? That's it. We'll help to see you a lot of see see you all there. 
on October 27th. So you can learn more about Sound Vision and be uh, meet Linda and Amar, and I will be happy to meet you all. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, assalamu alaikum. You're listening to Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM. We'll take a short break and we will be back in a minute. You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave2037. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck for Dave2037 so he can buy anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman. What are you getting Steve2037? Steve2037 will be just fine. Well, okay, but don't expect to borrow my anti-gravity boots. Save something for the future. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. When I have an asthma attack, I feel scared. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. I feel like I'm choking. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital. You know how to react to their asthma attacks. Here's how to prevent them. Call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. Visit www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA and the Ad Council. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. For those of you who are new to the Radio Islam family, welcome. You can keep up with us by following us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And then take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. So if it's iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or Google Play, you'll find us at that same handle, at Radio Islam USA. All right, family. You're going to find today's uh, discussion really interesting, especially considering that we're going to be looking at a change of the guard here, especially uh, for those of you who are in the Chicago uh, area. Right now, we know we got listeners uh, spread out, but those who are in the Chicago area, you're going to find this really interesting because our topic today, we're going to be looking at Chicago's pension woes, which is a really fun topic. Uh, and you're going to hear a lot of a lot of the, the candidates that are tossing their hat in from there. They're going to be asked about this. But today we've got some expert insight in studio with us, Amanda Cass. She is the Associate Director of the Government Finance Research Center at UIC. All right. Uh, shout out to UIC. And um, we welcome her. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And just a plug for the center. We're a brand new center and we're part of the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs. Awesome. Awesome. Love to uh, love to see new things popping up. <laughs> so so let let's let's get into this here. So this pension 
crisis that we have. It's one that, um, for those who, who've been following it, say that it's certainly one that could have been averted, um, but there were, but the way it was funded, it was not funded in a way that really kept up with uh, the market or investments. Uh, so we've had to go through a few different stop gaps. So kind of give us, give us those who are not following this, give us kind of a, uh, give us a lay of the land of how we got where we're at right now. Sure. Um, and I'll, I'll hopefully keep it interesting for the listeners. So <laughs> the kind of first thing to know um, that some people don't know is that the city government is in charge of four different pension funds. The pension funds for police officers, firefighters, municipal employees, and laborers. Importantly, the members of the Chicago Teachers Pension Fund, that's a completely separate fund, and it's controlled by Chicago Public Schools and not the city government. Mm-hmm. And so the history for all four of the pension funds it is a bit unique, especially in the recent years. But in general, the kind of problem for decades has been that the city's payments into the pension systems weren't connected to the cost of benefits or any unfunded liabilities. And so kind of that meant that the city was putting money into the pension systems, but it was underfunding the pensions. And, and once you had the um, financial crisis, the problem of underfunding ballooned and it kind of snowballed. And because the city's contributions weren't connected to the unfunded liabilities or the cost of benefits, it meant that it just kept growing and growing and growing and growing. Benefits, um, as in health and um, the annuity, annuity. So the, the the pension benefits. So okay. um, retiree health care is kind of a separate beast. And we're kind of just talking about the um, pension benefits. Okay. Okay. So, how uh, where does the money come from for the pension? So right now it historically um, came from property taxes, and it's, it still does for police and fire. For labor and municipal, the main revenue sources today are the 911 surcharge for labor and then the water sewer usage tax for the municipal employees. But the city's contributions, again, they were historically really low, and we just saw big increases into what the city's paying into the pension systems in the kind of last few years. Okay. So you wrote Excuse me. You wrote in an article that the city in 2020 is going to have a 31 percent increase in its uh, pension contribution that it's responsible for. Now, that's a I mean, 31 percent sounds like it's a big number, um, but that's not something that's already funded. Right. right? And it's it's important to realize that the so one it. It's a big increase in the pension contribution, but it's important for our listeners to know that the pension contributions are just one part of, of the budget. And so if you're looking at the kind of total budget, uh, that it's it's not a, a 30% increase in the overall budget. Right, right. That's important. The other thing to know is, is why are the city's contributions jumping significantly from year to year? And that's because of um, new funding requirements that were put in place at the behest of the current mayoral administration in the last couple of years. So police and fire pension funds, there was legislation passed back in 2010 that was going to require the city's contributions to the police and fire pension funds to dramatically increase in 2015. And instead of doing this kind of 
taking just you know one bite from the apple and starting to properly fund the pension systems in 2015, the current mayor lobbied for a change to that funding law in putting in place instead a five-year ramp period and so that the city's contributions to the police and fire pensions for 2015 through 2019 in state law, they're fixed dollar amounts that increase from year to year. And then 2020 is the first year in which they start funding the pension systems based on unfunded liabilities in the cost of benefits being earned. And so we don't, we actually don't know what that jump is going to be. Could be more, could be less. Right now, the estimate is somewhere around um, 30%. Labor and municipal, they also have a five-year ramp period, but it's... Um, Slightly, its ramp period is years 2017 through 2022. So we're going to see another jump in the city's contributions uh, in the next coming years, in 2023. So I I think it also is important that you mention that it's not, that 31% is not the, it's not um, of the city's total budget, right? It's just as far as the pension is concerned. So with regard to the budget itself, it's basically like a 10%. um, It's 10% of the budget, the pension itself. It's it, contribution. You know, yes, ish, because it depends on. <laughs> I say ish because the city, the city's budget is really complicated, and so it depends on um, what do we want to look at with the city's budget. So a lot of times, the city's budget is talked about in just in terms of just the corporate fund, and so it's going to look different if you're just looking at that slice of the budget versus if you're kind of looking at the comprehensive mm. um, picture. Okay, so the. the the ramp year or the year that's not funded. So the city council, they took care of the first four years. That's already squared away. So that's an excellent point is that the ramp period for the police and fire is five years, but mm-hmm. city council only passed the property tax levy for four of the five years. Genius. <laughs> so they've got, they've got the 2019 um, required pension payments to the police and fire pension funds to kind of come up with set the levy for that and then they have the big hike uh in in 2020 and the new whoever becomes elected mayor is going to have to figure that out Mm, okay uh so they have to figure out how to come up with this additional revenue uh well they have yeah they have to figure out how they're going to do it and generally uh the city has a a track record of some would say being punitive when it comes to raising uh raising funds uh whether it be through you know fines and fees uh, and of course, nobody wants their property taxes to go up. So, what what are experts, um, yourself included? What are what what, are, what what's the thought about how to close that revenue gap? I think that we kind of need to be thinking about things in terms of both the short term, so the next kind of budget, um, and and then the longer term, because a lot of the kind of more big revenue sources that could be progressive, like having a city income tax that maybe has a progressive structure, uh, or taxing services, extending the sales tax to cover services, that requires action by state lawmakers. And with both of those, so having a city income tax likely requires a change to the state constitution. There's a specific process for that. That probably can't happen until 2020, so after the... um, the budget needs to be set for the the first big hike in the pension contributions. And then extending the sales tax to tax services is, is going to be a little logistically, I think it would take some time to implement. So the kind of, in the near term, I think the, the easiest from a 
logistical from a kind of implementation standpoint is to increase the property tax levy. But then you get to the question of uh, the regressivity. We know that Cook County's assessment system right now is flawed and regressive. There's likely, unless barring some kind of fantastic um, event, there's going to be a new assessor who campaigned on a platform of kind of fixing that. And we don't quite know what the outcome of that's going to be. Mm-hmm. And so we don't know how it's going to impact people who've, um, who have the least ability to kind of pay and be able to make a, a big increase in their property tax bill. We don't, yeah. So politically, though, uh, you wrote that there is it's kind of a tricky situation with raising property um, or reassessing property values. Could you talk a bit more about that? Sure. I think we're seeing um, again. We don't. We kind of don't know. We know that this the the assessment system that has existed has been flawed, and it's ended up overtaxing people with the lower priced homes, and it's undertax people with higher priced homes and that that's fallen along racial lines right. and so we know that's been a problem we know Fritz Kage has said he's going to change that and that's just on the residential side there's also as the ProPublica Illinois is exposed there's a huge problem with the commercial assessments too and so um, we don't know exactly how that's going to suss out when Kage comes into assessor, but Joe Berrios recently did reassessments in some communities on the north side, and there's been a huge um, pushback on it. So Cranes, Chicago, ran a story about um, kind of the the big increases that owners have seen there and the public backlash that's happened of people saying, whoa, like, you know, my taxes just jumped 30%. You know, this is outrageous. How am I going to pay for it? You know, let me take a step back before we go into some of the other um, solutions that have been put out there. And that is to look at uh, look at the original funding structure for the um, for these pensions. Right. These four pensions that we're talking about right now. Um, And that is is it was based upon a multiplier as as opposed to being which is not actuarially sound. I, I refer to it as a goofy <laughs> m- multiplier. <laughs> All right. So ex- explain that original system the way it was uh, set up. <laughs> sure. Um, so it, until, uh, again, recent years, so 2015 for police and fire, 2017 for labor and municipal, the city's contributions to the four pension funds were based on how much money um, the employees were putting into the pension system. So for the fire fund, for every $1 that a firefighter put into the pension fund, the city was putting in $2.26, and that multiplier was set back in 1982. I don't know what that multiplier was based on at the time, but it was a a set multiplier. So again, if unfunded liabilities change, if the cost of benefits change, that multiplier didn't change. Uh, And so it was a huge problem. For municipal employees, the multiplier was $1.25. So completely not at all connected to actuarial math in in kind of any way, shape, or form. Um, And so everybody recognized that that was a huge problem. It was uh, dramatically underfunding the pension systems. Again, labor and municipal were projected to go insolvent. And so they they put in place new funding laws um, for all four pension systems. But they did it in, uh, I would argue, a flawed way because 
they didn't just go from underfunding the pension systems to getting on a proper kind of plan to pay down the unfunded liabilities, they put in these five-year ramp periods. So for five years, we're going to continue to underfund the pension systems, albeit not quite as much as we were under the prior law. To your knowledge, is this something that was commonplace for municipalities? Uh, <laughs> I wish no. you all could see. <laughs> see a reaction shake. No, no, no. So it's 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 not commonplace in Illinois, and it's or um, in the other municipal pension funds that I've I've looked into nationally. So I haven't really found another example of a local pension fund that had these kind of goofy static multipliers. Um, and it's important to point out that municipal employees for cities, villages, and towns, and other places in Illinois, they're part of the Illinois Municipal Retirement Fund, mm-hmm. um, which is a consolidated pension fund. And it's well-funded. And they're, you know, they it's, it's properly funded. Um, then outside of Chicago, there's police and fire pension funds that there's over 600 of them. They're individually managed. They have never had these goofy multipliers. They've had a, um, a funding law. But the story with those funds is more complicated because there wasn't um, a mechanism until recently to enforce municipalities to properly pay into their police and fire pension funds. So you have underfunding of those funds mm-hmm. for a different reason than the city of Chicago. Well, I know, uh, and I've been a union member myself for uh, 10 years and uh, one of the things that no union wants to do and they don't want to take on the burden of having to contribute more uh, but has that has that been put on the table uh, as a as part of the discussion to say okay look let's get the pension funded and maybe short term you know we'll do something short term uh, the city will contribute more than uh, maybe than it was prepared to originally uh, and we're asking for those uh, those unions to also contribute maybe a bit more. Has that been thrown on the table? And is the and does that does that really make sense? So we've had kind of in recent years two swings at, at changing the pension laws for current employees, and they've both been struck down by the Illinois State Supreme Court. So the Illinois State Constitution has a. a pension protection clause that basically says, you know, when you join the pension systems, whatever is in law at the time that you join is what you're entitled to. And so it's been interpreted that you can't then increase the employee contributions because uh, the employee's contributions is written into state law. And so we had um, in 2014, there was a law that was passed that changed the um, the provisions for the municipal and labor pension funds, and that was then ruled unconstitutional in March of 2016. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, there was uh, legislation that changed the rules for the state pension systems that was also struck down uh, by the state Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we've got, and it's, if you go read the Supreme Court rulings, which I encourage anybody to do, they're, they're pretty understandable. It the justices are kind of very clear that that you can't leave that alone. Yeah, leave it alone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, looking also looking back at the uh, one of the things that's put on the table again to property taxes, um, and we most often we associate property taxes with our schools. Mm-hmm. Now, 
what would be the impact of with what, what would be the impact of raising property taxes in a school system where we've seen closures um the, the whole dynamic of the the, the, the school system it has changed as far as you know neighborhood schools are concerned and all that good stuff um do you think there will be pushback from from residents in these communities that are looking for uh you know for expansion of services within the school systems uh hearing that we're going to raise taxes and that money is going to be pushed off to to take care of pensions yeah i think it's it's not just schools it's just investment of kind of communities in parts of the city writ large and yeah. so i think it's kind of again there's a lot of complicated dynamics going on because you've got communities that have seen these school closures that have seen disinvestment and that property owners in some of those communities have been already overtaxed and you're going to kind of tell them well we have to increase your property taxes even more Mm -hmm. because we didn't properly pay our pensions and we blew in this debt and then on the kind of flip side you have property owners that have enjoyed being undertaxed because of the flawed assessment system who are going to see perhaps significant increases in their, in their property taxes, who are going to push back and say, hey, wait a minute, like, you're trying to raise my property taxes by an outrageous amount. Like, I'm used to this. They're used to being undertaxed. And so I think you're going to see resistance um, on that end. I think the kind of unknown to me is, is the outcome of the reassessment process. So it could be the case that um, owners, property owners in certain communities that have been, like I said, overtaxed will see their assessments um, kind of lowered in their tax burden, mm-hmm. keeping everything else static, um, would be reduced. So it could it could be that for those homeowners, they're maybe negligibly impacted by an increase in the city's property tax. Mm. What happens if the city can't can't uh, fulfill its obligation? So there's. Um, there's a state law that says if the city of Chicago doesn't pay into its pension systems what it's required to by state law, that the pension funds can request that the state comptroller intercept grant funds that would otherwise go to the city and redirect it uh, to the pension funds. But the important thing, again, is that the city of Chicago is unique from all the other municipalities. So for all other municipalities, uh, the money that could be intercepted is any state revenue that goes to that municipality. So that would include um, the share of the income tax that is passed on to local governments. City of Chicago, it's a much, much, much more limited slice of, the, of um, revenue, and it's only the grant funds, so it's not really that much. Um, and then the kind of other the nightmare kind of scenario, I would say, is, is if the pension funds went insolvent. And by insolvent, I mean they literally ran out of assets and couldn't pay out benefits, which is not going to happen in the, you know, tomorrow. So mm-hmm. nobody should panic over that. But I think that's the, that's the big unknown because then, and I think it would kind of be contested in courts over what happens then and who is responsible for paying the pension benefits because the city, when it, when it was passing the or lobbying for the state law to change the municipal and labor pension funds, it made an argument that that it was giving a benefit to those employees because it was going to be properly funding the pension systems, and that the city of Chicago wasn't on the hook to pay the benefits if the pension funds went insolvent as they were projected to go back um, in like 2013. 
And and so the city's argument at that time was like, look, we're giving you the benefit of kind of ensuring that you're that the funds aren't going to go insolvent. And, and if they do go insolvent, we're not on the hook for paying out the benefits. So that's why you should take this deal. Interesting argument. But it's uh, right. It's a, it's an it's an argument. I mean, who yeah. we we don't know what would happen. I was trying to think of. Um, I couldn't find an example of. Um, of a pension fund that I knew that had gone insolvent and kind of what had happened there. So I think it's kind of super unknown. So one of the things that that we've seen is uh, the issuance of bonds. Um, Can you talk a bit about that as a possibility for bridging that gap? Sure. And (laughs) I just feel like I'm probably like boring your listeners with like kind of like in the weeds details. But so... um, the idea behind issuing a, a pension obligation bond, and this try not to get in the weeds kind of too much, is that um, you're you're trying to make the or the rationale behind it is that you, the city, can can have a interest rate on the bond that is lower than the investment rate assumption for the pension funds, mm-hmm. and that um, the difference between the two. Will then essentially mean that you're that you're paying the debt owed to the pension systems back at a at a lower interest rate. That's the theory of it. Right. So the the pension systems um, investment rate rate assumptions ranges, but let's kind of just say it's seven percent. Uh, if you can, if the city can issue a bond for five percent, in theory, that's going to maybe save the city money in the long run. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> it it only does if if the pension fund's actual investment performance beats the interest rate on the bonds. Right. If it doesn't, then it's a net loser for the city. Um, and so it's... it's, it's Sounds nice. like a risky proposition. It's a risky proposition, especially because we're kind of in a... You know, it's we've had a bull market since kind of right after the recession, so there's a lot of kind of worry that we're going to see an economic downturn um, in the near future. Yeah, the bear is coming. Right. Potentially, and and you do so. The other kind of benefit, so that's the kind of one benefit of issuing the pension obligation bond. The other reason places do it is to um, kind of for for budgetary short term budget reasons. Is that issuing the pension obligation bond? You kind of take an immediate. You immediately put that money into the pension systems. It reduces unfunded liabilities because the city's contributions starting in twenty twenty for police and fire will be connected to the unfunded liabilities you potentially reduce the required contributions. Uh, and so potentially you kind of save money in the short term, even if it does cost you in the long term. Okay. All right, so, so let's talk about, because I feel like I don't, I don't want anybody getting afraid, um, but uh, th- I think this is really great stuff uh, because most of us don't really get a chance to see behind the curtain, right? So I feel like that's what we're getting here. Um, so when it comes to other possibilities and these the the new uh the, the candidates that are that are throwing their their names uh in the hat when it comes to new ideas well really i, th- I don't think i've heard a new idea um we, we heard about a casino but the casino was something that was actually uh the emmanuel administration uh and and he had very he had very specific ideas as to how that money was to was to go yep. um so but other than that, what are we looking at? We're looking at marijuana? 
Yeah, I mean, people have floated legalizing recreational marijuana and taxing that. People have floated, again, a city income tax, expansion of the sales tax to include services, those kind of ideas. Again, they, they take, you know, I think those are all interesting proposals, but my question to the candidates is, like, great, let's hear the details. What is, what is your plan for actually legislatively getting that accomplished? What's your timeline for that? What are your kind of revenue estimates? What do you think the implementation period is going to be? Now, that's important that you mention that because you say if, it's leg- if, it's, if it involves legislation, that means that as far as the 2020 um, um, requirement is concerned, they wouldn't be able to make it because right. legislation, it takes a while for that to, to go through. Right. So explain a bit the, the payment process because uh, it is listed as 2020. Yeah, but there's there's something to it. It's kind of it's a little confusing. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a, so in state law, the kind of pension contributions are connected to the property taxes, which are on you know a multi-year cycle, and so there's a difference between the pension contribution, which for the city's um, budgetary pers- purposes, versus when the payment is actually made. So the city has to budget for the big increase in its 2020 budget. That money doesn't actually get deposited into the pension systems until 2021. So they're basically like we, like you said, we pay our property taxes in arrears. Yep. So okay. Yeah. Not exactly. that confusing there. No, okay. but it, it can be. I mean, it's yes and no because for me, like I get confused by this, and I'm studying somebody that spends all day looking at this. But in, okay. in you know, in the city's kind of documents, in one document it'll be reported per the city's budget year, in another it's reported when the payments actually made. So it's like you got to kind of carefully track the numbers at all times to figure out, wait, is this number connected to this thing that I think so? Right. And it, it makes it really complicated. Yeah. Uh, do you think that the whoever going, whoever's going to be the next mayor, how likely is it that they are going to do anything that is actually different because of that timeline, because of the, the difficulty that comes along with anything that requires legislation? And the only thing that, that really they have any real input on um, other than fines and fees would be, I guess, some influence regarding property assessment. Right. And again, I don't, the increase, we need to look at it in terms of the city's overall budget. We've got the kind of reassessments going on. So maybe the increase in the levy isn't going to be that burdensome for taxpayers. So I don't, people shouldn't be worried about it. Yeah. Um, or at least they should, please don't panic about it, I guess. Absolutely. Um, no. <laughs> I think the possibility of all this stuff is we're going to know pretty soon in November, right? Because it's going to who's, – who's going to be governor? So yeah. some of these things become uh, – seem much more possible in the short term if J.B. Pritzker is elected governor and things um, seem like a progress, progressive income tax or uh, recreational marijuana expansion, the sales tax seem a little less possible if, if Governor Rauner is reelected. So – I guess we'll, we'll know in a few short weeks, yeah. or I guess a month. It, it's flying by. Yeah. It's flying by. <laughs> uh, and I, I'll, I'll close with this. I'll say that um, although we've got a, a 50-50 mix, our, our listeners, right? About 50% are Muslim, 50% non-Muslim. But for those who, um, who would not maybe personally use marijuana, right, uh, you still look at the fact that with its use, if the city were to tax it that the revenue is that the potential revenue is definitely there uh I, you know i'm not an economist but i'm just 
yeah, you just can, looking at the uh, uh, just take kind of taking a social gauge. I think the the revenue is possible there is the revenue is definitely possible there from taxing it. There's also potential kind of for lower costs in terms of, of policing and things tied to that. And so I think with that proposal, we want to kind of think about it holistically in terms of not just kind of what revenue is going to be generated, but how um, how is how is the product going to be regulated? We can look right to kind of Colorado that's had recreational marijuana for quite a while and has had um, some ups and downs in terms, I think, of, of the implementation and some challenges that that state has, has faced in terms of uh, who's using it and how are people affected and what's been the impact to um, kind of policing and criminal justice costs and also revenue. Oh, I'll definitely say as far as uh, policing in black and brown communities in particular, that would have a huge, uh, huge impact. Um, so uh, that in itself is, is a plus as far as I'm concerned. And I, I think that's I, – I like that you brought that up because I think a lot of times um, – kind of revenue and taxation can often get thought of in isolation from the communities that get impacted by it. And and so I think it's it's good to think about who, when we're talking about raising revenue, let's talk about, like, who is that revenue going to be coming from and what are the kind of other ways that they might be in, impacted by any kind of change in the law. So with recreational marijuana, we've got the revenue, but we've also got this whole policing uh an impact to communities that would happen that could be really positive as well. Right. Uh, look at, uh, kind of juxtapose that with uh, red light cameras, uh, parking boots, um, and, and how the, the whole parking fine structure has, has changed. You know, it used to be that you could have three tickets or four tickets, now it's two. Matter of fact, I had a boot. What was it like? I didn't even know I had two tickets. I had no idea. And then you you tack on the kind of the punitive fees that are that are tied to the to you know getting a ticket or a boot or or anything like that. So it really kind of just like piles on, and it and it falls on people who can often least afford to pay. And so it doesn't yeah. it doesn't make sense for the city because if somebody can't pay the original ticket cost, they're not going to then be able to pay the subsequent fees. And so you've got a huge maybe delinquent bill, but if somebody can't pay, they can't pay. So for you for you all who are considering running for mayor for those who you know if you already put your name out there or not that's something that i hope that you all are taking into consideration that whatever revenue has to be raised it should not be raised uh, to the detriment of of the residents uh, especially those who are least able to afford you know bearing the the the, the brunt of that um of that that fundraising <laughs> right so um we appreciate you being here. Uh, we thank you. Um, I think I, don't, I think you gave us some really good info. Thanks. And the one last thing I would say to candidates, just to add on, yeah, is that don't reduce and don't advocate for reducing the pension contributions because reducing them today is just going to cause the city to pay more in the future. That's partially why the city's contributions are so high right now. Mm. Yeah, kicking a can down the road. Yep. Uh, you know what? Since since this is a new uh, center. Why don't you go ahead and just, just let folks know where they can get more information about, uh, as I told you, for those of you, if you're just tuning in, Amanda Cash, she is the Associate Director of Government Finance Research Center at UIC.
Um, we're a new center. We're part of the College of Urban Planning and Public Affairs at UIC. We've got a website, gfrc.uic.edu. Uh, we have our first event on this Thursday. It's free and open to the public. It starts at 4.30. The event details are on our website. Um, so check us out. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. All right, Radio Islam family. All right, we have come to the end of another edition of Radio Islam. Thanks for tuning in. We thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. And we thank our producer for tonight's segment, the impressive one, Ibrahim Baig. And he's he's on the boards. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. We remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of sound vision. All right, we're going to leave you now as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.